episode two of our incredible podcast. My name happens to be Kari, or Karri, depending on your pronunciation, and my co-host is the ever-reliable and awesome Henrik. Welcome back. Thank you. Happy to be here, at least at the point of the moment. Good. Let's see what happens in the following moments when we start to talk about this... uh, Rather interesting adventure called The Big Lebowski. Yeah, this week's movie. What is your relationship with this film, Mr. Henrik? My relationship with the movie. It's it's kind of a complicated. I've seen it, is it now four or five times? Not completely sure which. Okay. I watched this movie now for the second time because I felt that I couldn't put any material really together from the first viewing of the movie. And the first viewing of the movie was about, uh, let's say, a month ago. And this movie is now in our reviewing or or whatever we are doing now because uh, the first person who was supposed to be my co-host, suggested that we watch this movie. And I'm not a big fan of comedies, and often the comedies that people recommend to me, and they say that they are the greatest of all time, are kind of meh for me. But certainly there's more than probably meets the eye in the big Lebowski. It's a little bit deeper film, in fact, or... Probably it isn't. It, it depends how you look at it. But we'll we'll be delving deep into this weirdness. And this show is, I suppose, sponsored or improved by the drink known as White Russian. It's the first time I've, I'm probably drinking it. Of course, because the movie so prominently features the White Russian drink. How's your white Russian, Henrik? I have to say it's pretty good. I had to travel a little bit because it's Sunday here in in Poland and probably in Finland as well. Uh, But the point is, yeah, there's a new law that says that most of the stores of this and that size cannot be open on Sundays. So you have to go really make the effort to get the string to the show. All right. Yeah, so I've seen it two times, but I saw a lot of comments online and people tend to say, the experts of this movie, that is, that you should see it at least three times to kind of get it. On the first viewing, I was like kind of confused about the the whole structure or lack thereof of the movie. But first of all, there's not a lot of things going on in the movie. There is this guy, the dude, and he's practically doing nothing. And he's our main character. And all the events that take place in this movie, they are kind of 
brought around him. The main character is doing nothing, but the events close to him are kind of driving the plot forward, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, you are, you want to dwell deeper into the world of synopsis. Let's do it. So the movie begins with Mr. The Dude, and he happens to be unemployed, doesn't have a lot of money, and happens to have this kind of laid-back attitude for life in general. And as we see that he doesn't have a lot of interesting things going on, he cares about his carpet, his audio tapes, and just uh, smoking weed and uh, drinking white Russians. And he he's having a great time doing nothing. And then there are some burglars or kind of mafia nihilists that come to his house and they are saying that he should pay some amount of money to them. Well, it turns out that they are in the wrong house and it happens that there's actually another Mr. Lebowski and he ha- happens to be quite affluent in nature. And we get to know the richer Mr. Lebowski and everything kind of explodes in the motion from there. And it just happens that Mr. Labowski is married to a much younger lady compared to him, about three times the age. Apparently, she's kidnapped. But later on in the movie, we see that she's not kidnapped. Actually, she's trying trying to get money from Mr. Rich Labowski to finance uh, <laughs> nail polish life. Basically, the movie is about the poor Mr. Labowski, the dude, getting into all kinds of trouble on matters that he doesn't really care of. He just wants to go home and smoke weed and get some white Russian. So that's basically the the synopsis. So for many, I suppose, the dude is the definition of how to live a happy life. There's a lot of literature about the movie. I've found at least two or three books. There's actually kind of a religion about the dudeism. So this has garnered a lot of following this movie, especially with the uh, young people. And there was this uh, journalist, Oliver Benjamin, who was so inspired that he created indeed this dudeism. It has about half a million members. So something definitely was right about what they did with the Lebowski movie. But let's try to kind of understand what they're doing right here. Yeah, I mean, the Big Lebowski is a kind of a interesting piece in the in the sense of that after the movie came out, it kind of a, it has become a complete like like you said, it has become a religion and it has become a lifestyle, and in many ways the dude has kind of he has transformed into this cultural symbol and a way of a philosophical thinking, which I, I, I think is pretty magnificent achievement from any film. Like there, there are not many movies that actually can make the claim that they have had this huge cultural impact. Star Wars is the first that comes to mind that has had as big of an impact Whereas Star Wars is a complete franchise and a film trilogy, and after that, uh, a second trilogy, and now 
what probably will be like 35 sequels, The Big Lebowski is just one movie. Weren't they thinking of doing some kind of sequel to this movie? They are. Uh, John Turturro is planning on making a spin-off. Like, uh-huh. yeah, it's uh, at the moment, as far as I know, the movie is not yet in the works. But Turturro fell in love with his character, the bow, uh, uh, bowling pedophile, Jesus. Uh, and he's been wanting to kind of return to that character for a while now. It was quite recently, however, like, I, I, I would say 2016 tops, when he asked for the rights to use the character from the Cohen brothers. And they, for best of my understanding, the Coens gave him the right to actually use the character on his kind of this upcoming movie that is due to come out at some time. It sounds pretty weird that somebody fell in love with the pedophile character. But uh, actually, when I saw the movie, I could see that this character had a lot of going on. The character is quite original in some way, because he felt like a character that could have been featured in some other movie or some other series before. The guy is not doing too much in the movie, but uh, the things that he does are kind of powerful. It's a well-played character, all the movements when he is talking about f- fucking the bowling team in the ass and then this, woo, and all the physical movements. They are, it's, it's nicely done, yeah. Very memorable character for sure. Yeah, if I remember correctly, Turtaro himself did not like his portrayal or the, or the you know, the role, uh, performance he was giving in the movie originally. Oh. He kind of softened up to it as the time went by, which is kind of a running theme with the, the movie in itself. Like when the big Lebowski came out, I, I, it's, a, it's a cult movie today. But upon its release, it was pretty badly maimed by all the critics. And it was a box office flop. And it's only years after it came out originally that it has gathered this cult appeal. And it has managed to get all this appreciation that the movie now today holds. Yeah, I noticed that it was basically... uh pretty much a flop in the box office. But after that, this all this phenomenal stuff started to happen. And again, as we talked in the last episode, especially with this movie, people find all kinds of crazy metaphors about reading too much into this movie. But yeah, definitely, it's not your typical comedy in, in the sense that actually nothing really is important in this movie. You can cut out the moment where their friend gets a heart attack. It doesn't mean anything really in the movie, except to maybe give like a dramatic effect to the end, give something to sob about, to leave with a certain feeling out of the theater. Yeah, not really even that, because the character was not really important in the movie in any way. 
Like you, you don't really connect to that character that strongly because he's on the sidelines for the entirety of the movie, I would say. That's true. And often when people talk about this film, they talk about the, uh, the three people that are fighting against this, these nihilists that are demanding money. But in fact, I forget again his name, but this, this, this one guy is not important in any sense. He's just there to, He's just just there to give some comedic relief. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Steve Buscemi is so uh, Donny. Donny, right? Yeah. Like who shows up for the final confrontation, but ends up doing fucking nothing at all during the fight against the nihilists. Yeah, like the whole fight at the end of the movie is taken care of by the dude and Walter while while Donnie's off screen having a heart attack. Yeah, and even other parts you can cut off from this movie and nothing would really change, like, plot-wise. There's a lot of scenes, basically all of the scenes have a lot of nothing going on. They're just talking about stuff. There's very little driving plot in these scenes and basically you could cut out like half of the movie and nobody would notice uh, except in the runtime of course when you go to the theater yeah that is kind of the whole point or a major thing in the big Lebowski that it's not really about the plot or the story the directors the Coen brothers have repeatedly admitted as much that it's not a film about the plot, it's a film about the feeling and the atmosphere, what is important in this film. Let me quote the great Roger Ebert. The Big Lebowski is about an attitude, not a story. The film is all about Jeff Lebowski's equanimity in the face of vicissitudes. He's pounded, waterboarded, lied to and insulted. His rug is pissed on and, and his car is set aflame. He is seduced by a woman who wants only his seed. He has a fortune dangled before his eyes, only to have it replaced by telephone books and used boxer shorts. To heal and keep himself whole, he stirs himself another white Russian, has a toque, sits in a warm bath. Like the Buddha, he focuses on the big picture. And I like that about the dude. I don't necessarily like the quite vicious language that you have for for most of the time in the movie and let me just say that you didn't really need to make a movie about a lower class person let's say or a working class person without a job you could uh, do this for any character from any social class and it would still be interesting when you have this dude that just has this buddha attitude or the attitude of somebody who probably <laughs> would meditate a lot. He has his thing together in his head. He can see the bigger picture that nothing really matters what happens in this movie. Actually, the dude reminds me of an old friend. Like, like the dude, he's always outright. Like He ignores all the drama around him. And he could talk about it later with great enthusiasm, but he never took part in the drama itself as it was unfolding. Probably my favorite thing he ever said to me was his 
response to me when I said to him that I was stressed. He just responded, why? Just don't be. And actually, first, it feels very stupid, like uncaring. But probably he didn't even, even care that, that, that I had a problem. And in one sense, he, he shouldn't, because there is no problem once you let the idea of there being a problem go away. Really, what he's saying is absolutely true. Uh, stress is all in your head. In that sense, it doesn't really exist. And if you can let it go, there is no stress. It's just you responding to external stimuli and usually in the wrong way, as we can see. Yeah, well, there is kind of a... The way I see it is that the amount of stress that you are going to suffer is linked in into the how strongly you want to be part of the society surrounding you. Because, like, like you said, much of the stress is kind of a self-caused, in a sense that you feel the situation stressful. You worry about something, and that worry makes the situation stressful for you, and that creates the stress. But at the same time, the thing that worries you, the deadline you have to meet, the bills you have to pay, the, the tax return document you have to fill out. All of these things that we these days find extremely stressful are also things that come to us from the outside. You have a job, which means you have a boss, so you have a deadline. Or you want to keep up your social status and your financial security. So you st stress about your taxes and you stress about the this uh, month's rent and you stress about your, you know, how, how much money you have on your bank account. In that sense, if, if you are willing to kind of a step outside of the society, outside of the society's norms, then you can kind of uh, have this stress-free carefree attitude and this non-stressful life. But if you want to be part of the society and be part of kind of the machine that runs behind everyday life, then I would say you can't be free of stress. To be an active part of the society, you need to be a student or have a job or do, do something with your life. And that need to do something, be something, is the, I would say, the major cause for the stress. And since you said that the movie could be kind of a, be made out of, uh, from the perspective of every social class, uh, I can see the argument. But I would say that in the end, it is quite necessary for this story and the philosophy of the Pikula Pawski that the dude himself is an unemployed slacker because that gives him the possibility to live without without the stress and have this Buddhist way of life. If the dude would be someone who works the office hours from 8 to 4 p.m., he, he couldn't be the dude. The whole attitude and the whole philosophy would go with that. Do you remember a movie where a guy is having a really regular day? He has a wife, probably kids, and then something like 
everything goes wrong about his day. I believe it's from the 80s. Actually, things get too ridiculous by the end. There's some probably some rocket launchers firing and all that. But this guy is just, he has his regular day, then he gets pissed off because nothing is working, and then somebody's trying to rob him, and he gets so angry somewhere in the middle of the nowhere, going outskirts of the city, that he starts to fight the person who is attacking him, and he actually wins. Uh, hard times happen to him after after that as well. And it's so hilarious that he really doesn't care who you are, what you're doing, just get out of my fucking way, is the message. Yeah, the film you could be describing, I, I'm not sure about this, but it could be the uh, Falling Down, starring Michael Douglas. I think that's that's the one, must be Michael Douglas. Yeah. It's, it's been so long since, since I've seen it. Yeah, same here, same here. I can find some similarities in, in the dude's attitude, but of course... In the Michael Douglas movie, uh, he's aggressive, but the dude is just, he just minds his own business. Uh, this movie is based on a real, the dude that people actually call with that name. His name is Jeffrey Dowd. He used to be some kind of activist, maybe still is, and he's a film producer. He produced a movie called uh, Zebrahead. He, he took part in some demonstrations in the 60s against against the Vietnam War and he was apprehended. So yeah, the, the Cohen brothers met him in the 90s and then they based the character on this dude. Let's talk about the different versions of this film. I think there's only one version of the film actually, but there's another dubbed version for for Cable, and I found it kind of newsworthy to mention that the scene where they're at the house uh, of the guy who is in the oxygen tank, well, first of all, it was owned by a guy who uh, used an oxygen tank, but he was not in this metal cradle. Walter gets super angry and goes out to smash the car, and he keeps repeating the phrase, this is what happens when you fuck a stranger in the ass. Did you know what they did to that line in the cable version? Uh, no, I have never seen cable cable version. I've only seen the one where there is constant swearing. Yeah, yeah. Well, the most interesting factor about the cable version is that they, because of the tight regulations, they had to dub it and change the line to this is what happens when you find a stranger in the Alps. <laughs> <laughs> oh my fucking god. <laughs> oh uh, my god. That's just uh, brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I've heard stories about these, you know, these kind of, these kinds of things happening. Yeah. The, the closest that comes to my mind is the Scarface, Brian De Palma film from the 80s if I remember correctly. But, however, uh, also a movie that has a ton of swearing in it. And likewise, the censors came hit really bad at the movie. And to have it broadcasted more openly, the swearing had to be redubbed. 
And there, there is a moment very early on in the movie where the, was it the border patrol or the, well, the authorities have gotten hands on Tony Montana as he enters the United States. And they are interrogating him since Montana is claiming that he's a peaceful fellow and has never done anything wrong in his life. And yet at the same time, he has a huge scar in his face. So they are interrogating him about the scar and where he got that. And in the film theater version, they are, they, the line goes that, where did you get that scar? Eat, eating a pussy. And, and then the read up version is, where did you get that scar? Eating a pineapple. Probably didn't fit the mouth movements too well, if there were. The Eagles, the band, weren't too fond that they, they were mentioned in such a way in this film. The dude, as everybody who saw the film, as you probably did before listening to this podcast, is in the taxi and he said that I hate the fucking Eagles, man. And the taxi driver throws the dude out of the taxi. And I thought the line was pretty funny. I'm not a big Eagles fan myself, but this created a lot of tension between the Cohen brothers and the Eagles for for some time. I think the Rolling Stones, or there was another band that they got an early viewing of this film and they saw the scene and they started laughing, after which the band said that you can use our song in the movie for free. Okay, did it know any, any of that stuff? Yeah, really surprised about the reaction from the Eagles because outside of the taxicab scene, which you described, the Eagles are actually pretty prominent in the film. Like Hotel California is played, I don't remember how many times, but it's clearly audible throughout the film. There is indeed a lot of interesting trivia around this film. Veronica Mars, I've never watched this series, but the creator Rob Thomas is apparently a huge fan of the Lebowski movie and he tried to add all the Lebowski dialogue in the whole series, but the series ended up after three seasons, so they were quite not able to do that, but they still did quite a lot of dialogue. So how, how was he actually planning to do that? Individual lines somewhere in the movie implanted in singular episodes or how? Yeah, I think it wasn't like in order or anything, but they were planting like parts of the dialogue a little bit here and there. Maybe too much. Somebody said that they did it too much. But for example, one of the lines when they're putting the dude, forcing him into the limo with the other Lebowski, the dude says the famous line, careful man, there's a beverage here. And they did that and a bunch of others. Okay. Yeah, like I, I, I watched, was it a season and a half of Veronica Mars? And I never picked up on that. Like, I never noticed, noticed the big Lebowski dialogue. So in that sense, if, if, if they have been doing that, you know, inserting lines into the episodes of Veronica Mars. I have to say that they did masquerade it pretty well. More trivia 
the Red Hot Chili Peppers bassist Flea, I believe how it's pronounced, was one of the nihilist goons. Uh, real name Michael Peter Balzari. So we have been complaining a lot about the symbolism in the last episode. At, at, yeah. at least me. And that, that's okay. In some instances, people drive it too far. They find symbolism everywhere. But uh, symbolism can also simply help to convey an idea to the audience. It's really true and this movie is all about symbolism. Yeah, like I, I was trying to kind of uh, say this on the last episode, but I am not against symbolism in itself. Uh, I think it can be extremely good and uh, and a strong tool to convey messages and, you know, to repre- pre- uh, present uh, different points of view. And maybe say something that you can't say outright. So in itself, I think that symbolism is quite a good thing. But the problem I have with symbolism is that symbolism is kind of a never-ending rabbit hole. Like it just goes deeper and deeper. If if you get caught up with that, all of a sudden you, you kind of become this stereotypical film buff or a film student that just sees symbolism everywhere and every little fucking aspect, with or without that symbolism ever actually being there. Did you ever catch what the Saddam Hussein reference was about? Was Did it really mean anything? Uh, yeah, the Saddam scene. The, the problem is it's kind of a... You can kind of a see it in so many ways. And it's especially tricky for me since I'm not American. So there is a cultural aspect which basically ties into all symbolism. But symbolism itself carries carries in itself a cultural aspect. So a person like me who is outside of comes from outside of that culture may not get it or may not get it right. But to me, personally, the Saddam scene was tying the movie kind of a, in its the, in the era that, it, that it's portraying. Yes, and there's a lot of interesting language in the movie. I think we should, in many episodes, also concentrate on just like a particular words. At least this is a subject uh, that is uh, interest of mine. The movie ends pretty much with the line of the dude where he says the dude abides. I think you can read into this in many ways or you can just say that it it really means nothing. It, it It's probably the case. There's a lot, a lot of meanings to this word. First is to remain, to continue, stay. And the second meaning is to have one's adobe, dwell, reside. And the third meaning is to continue in a particular condition, attitude, relationship, etc. And I would say that what they're trying to say is the third meaning. Yeah, then again, some have actually read from that line 
that the dude is or, or the dude would be would be being compared to Christ <laughs> throughout the movie. Like there, there is the outlook of the dude, this bearded fellow oh. in in a in a bathrobe, wearing sandals, and then with that line, the final, uh, you know, the the closing scene of the film. After the dude has said that the dude abides, the cowboy takes once again up the narration and mentions how. It's good that the dude is out there taking it easy for us sinners. Yeah, interesting point. He's like a pillar in in the midst of uncertainty and weird occurrences, and definitely has a beard. Yeah, but that I would actually say is one of the major points that the movie tries to bring across that. The dude, basically, like like we have discussed, is he's an outsider from the society. Outsider from the plot, kind of as well. Outsider from the plot as well, but that's a different talking point. There, there yes. is, or there, in a way, I would say there is a reason for that also. But there is kind of there is there is this conflict between the dude. And with the rest of the world within the movie, where the world and everybody in it sees dude as this failure, a slacker, a bum, a person who should get on with the society's program and get get a job and live like they live. And uh, they are all persons who actively try to do something. They try to be. They try to be strong throughout the movie. Everybody kind of uses his authority over the dude, or somehow brings out this aggressivity. They are very aggressive persons, and they kind of lash out against each other. Walter. Constantly carries a handgun with him, yells a lot, and yells at everybody. The rich guy, the titular Lebowski, the big Lebowski of the film, yells at the dude and has a, well, kind of a servant. And his daughter is also extremely controlling character and the porn producer is an extremely con- uh, controlling character going to as far as, you know, drugging out the dude and having his goons beat up the dude. And they all try to force themselves and the change that they bring to the world. While as the dude kind of uh, tries to do the exact opposite. He tries to minimize his impact on the surrounding world and just go with the flow and go with the wind and try to do as little as possible. Since you mentioned the Saddam scene, that could also be kind of a tying into that, with Saddam being a militant dictator that forcibly kind of a pushed his own 
own opinion onto others, causing more harm. And like every other character in the film as well, kind of missing out a lot because he's constantly just aggressively trying to push himself forward instead of going with the flow. I mean, like, like you said, the plot mainly happens around the dude without the dude actually doing that much for the plot. But yet, even though the, the dude does not actively do anything, he actually gets most of the plot. He's, he, he, he's the one who gets to crack the case. He's the one who gets to walk home happily. He's the one who gets, gets sex in that one scene. Like there, there is the whole plot still happens to the dude, even though he does as minimum as possible for the, for the plot of the movie. Yeah, like I've said, I wasn't very keen on this movie on the first go. It just felt more about... It felt really not very well structured, and I couldn't find a lot of meaning in it, and I found myself just confused how to even write about this movie in any good way. But then I gave it a second look, and then I saw what other people were writing about it, and... I kind of get it, and I get it that it wasn't a critical success, but then people found more the meaning in inside of it. Uh, I can completely see that because I have had the similar, uh, the exact same experience. Like the first time I saw the Big Lebowski, I really did not like the film. Yeah, not at all. Uh, I I. I have seen a bunch of Cohen Brothers stuff before I saw uh, the Big Lebowski. I catch up on it very late. And upon the first viewing of the film, I couldn't believe that. I could see that it clearly was a Cohen Brothers film, but I really felt that it was one of their weaker efforts. There was no love for the film from my part. And it has only been after these repeated viewings of the film that I've grown to like it more. Like, I I still don't totally like it. I have very big issues with the film. For example, the plot that we have uh, discussed and the lack of it, which bugs the hell out of me. But as I have a kind of a... uh, submitted myself to the movie more, I have uh, grown more acceptable towards it. And I would say this is probably why the critical and the box office went as it went upon the release of the movie and why it now has a cult status as a film. Because the with the critics and with the box office, there is also that the first viewing experience, which can be pretty rough. I like The Big Lebowski more now, but is it a good movie? Is it really? I mean, nothing happens there. And uh, a lot of the jokes can be said to be kind of adolescent and vulgar. But uh, there's something about... the There's... A lot that you can relate to 
in the Lebowski, but I don't think it's a masterpiece. Yeah. Um. You know you like like this. This is you know one one of the things you don't do when you are starting a podcast. You don't pick the big Lebowski or fucking second episode film. <laughs> like yeah, remember, remember kiddies, this is not how you podcast. This is fucking digging your own grave. For me, it's kind of a two-folded answer. I would say, yes, Big Lebowski is extremely good film. And I would say it can be considered a masterpiece as a movie. I myself can't do that, but I at the same time can kind of admit that I would not say that me not liking the Big Lebowski as much as many other people do is not so much necessarily the movie's fault as it's my fault as a viewer. But is it a good movie if you don't get it the first time around? I would say that it does not automatically mean that it's not a good movie. Mm. As I have now seen it multiple times, and like everyone listening to this can point out not nearly enough times, I, I would say that when it comes to the Pikla Pavski as a film, and as the type of film that it tries to be, I would say it, it nails it perfectly. Yes. And in that sense, I would say that, yeah, it, it can be said that it's a good movie, and that it's a masterpiece, and you don't need to get the movie on the first time for it to be good. Yeah, just that it it was a totally conscious decision for me to choose this as one of the first three movies so that we can like really try to get some of the hard stuff out of the way so that we get a little bit out of our comfort zone and then get into the more juicy stuff for us perhaps. There's a lot of goodies in, in store for the next episodes, but I want us to see how we do with movies that are not so easy to traverse through. Yeah, and if something, Big Lebowski, definitely is not an easy movie to no. analyze. No, absolutely not, not. Yeah, necessarily not even to watch. No, I struggled a lot putting anything together about this movie. But in, in the last, probably the last 24 hours, I've been able to put some kind of structure together to kind of understand the ins and outs and what have you of this movie, as Big Lebowski or the, the dude would say. It's quite interesting, actually, that they... the Actually, the title of the movie means the millionaire, the Big Lebowski, not the dude. So just some trivia for you. Yeah, that was something that... <coughs> I too, it was on my, I would say, third viewing. Like, I had to see the movie three times to actually uh, understand the point that the Big Lebowski is not the dude. Yes. And yes. this, even though repeatedly throughout the movie, the dude goes on and says that he's not Mr. Lebowski, but that he is the dude and he wants to identify as the dude. And still, you know, as a as a viewer, as a as a movie watcher, 
I really did not catch up on that, except on my first viewing of the film. You mentioned the drug lord. We haven't talked about the drug lord. And, well, I think one of the funniest scenes happens during the drug lord when uh, the dude goes uh, to the notepad and tries to get the... Um, there, he was, this drug lord was writing something on the notepad and then he is kind of using the pen to get the kind of uh, imprint of the page that he, that he wrote to get the information that uh, should have been important, but actually it was just a, a guy uh, with a huge, you know. Yeah, a huge dick, a major dog. Yes, and then he goes back to the sofa <laughs> with uh, quite a... Uh, considerable speed and uh, getting the uh, position that he had before he left the sofa, so... Yeah, and there is kind of a point to all of that. Yeah, I mean, at at first, at first, I must correct myself before our listeners do that for us. I mentioned that Mr. Treehorn is a drug lord, which he is not. He is an export producer making nudie films, which is also kind of a huge part of the symbolism of this movie. But yeah, to get back on, you know, the scene you were describing, like in itself, the Rip, the Big Lebowski is a satire. It's a satire of the old film noir movies, the black and white Humphrey Bogart detective films. Uh, 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 you know, to the point where certain characters are almost, you know, copycats of the famous characters from the old film noirs. There is the rich, a little bit fat guy. There is the detective in this film, the dude, who is kind of a targeted to be the fall guy. And then there, there are all these seedy underworld players, like, for example, the Mr. Treehorn, who is a, a porn producer. And there is also the point of all these characters kind of living in the past. Like, the dude presents the hippies, and Walter tries to present a Vietnam veteran, even though he apparently never was in Nam. Yeah. Yeah. The Lepovsky, uh, the the Mister Lepovsky is kind of a representation of the American best generation, and uh, Mister Treehorn lives in the tries to live in the past of the fame season of Playboy and be kind of this Hugh Hefner. After the word move on past Hugh Hefner. And even the kind of the, the structure of the movie, where it's very disjointed, very kind of a episodic in its nature. It kind of a ties in back to the episodic nature of the old pulp stories in the, the penny magazines. Mm. And all that, all that, Ties into the scene you were describing where the dude tries to, you know, apply the age-old detective trick 
of go- going through someone's notes and having that, you know, played against him because the Treehorn has suspected that the dude might try to do this old black and white detective trick. So he goes in and just throws a major penis on the paper. Yeah. So, yeah, there, you know, I- I- enjoy the scene. <laughs> Interesting that you could put anything at all together from that scene. All right. Do you have off the top of your head any favorite quotes from this movie? I guess there is a lot if you're into this kind of humor in any way. There is. There is a lot of good quotations. I would. I mean, some um, some have noted it as one of the most quotable movies ever. Yes, yes. Um, let me just point out one of the probably most quoted quote that is in the movie, and that's probably the. Yeah, well, that's just like your opinion, man. And even before I saw this movie, I saw this prominently featured on many internet forums, let's say. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it's something that's not used as a direct quote, but it's still the kind of a ruling attitude on yeah. basically every net forum there is. Absolutely. And of course, all this talk with the the big Lebowski, when the Lebowskis meet for the first time, like El Duderino, if you're not into the whole <laughs> brevity thing. That's, yeah. That's great. All the, not sure where, where this clip was from, but the interview that the dude sees in the supermarket in the beginning of the movie when the uh, interviewed person says this aggression will not stand. <laughs> and there's a lot of quotes like that he, that the, 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 the dude uses during the movie. He repeats intellectually or, or pseudo-intellectually sounding stuff throughout the movie. What else? Uh, I, I'll kill your fucking car. Yeah, and yeah. That, that was a... Or, you know... Before that, this is what happens when you fuck the stranger up in the ass. Yeah, or find a stranger in the Alps. For yeah. That or I still jerk off manually. <laughs> I, I, I would say that's probably my favorite quote from the movie. <laughs> I had a rough night and I hate fucking eagles, man. And you human paraquat. And that... Uh, took an encyclopedia to see what it actually means. And then I'm just helping her to conceive, man. And lots of ins and outs and what have you. It's very quotable movie if you're into that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, since, since we talked about on what people see in the Big Lebowski, I would kind of make the argument and... Probably this will get us a ton of hate mail <laughs> later on from our listeners, but I, I kind of believe that the Piklapovsky is a Phil Ferrell comedy for the people who are too highbrow for Phil Ferrell comedies. Like there, there are a lot of similarities between how the 
humor in the movie works. And this may, might also tie into, you know, why, as, as you said, you have a problem with the, with the humor of the, of the Big Lebowski. And why I also, to a point, kind of have a problem with it, or I don't get the humor. I, I don't laugh, laugh at the movie as much as, you know, others do. And I would believe that it, it might come, it, it may be because of this point. Mm. Like, like there, there is a, there is this, to, to give you an example, there's this Phil Ferrell. God damn, I suck at, you know, pronouncing names. But yeah, Phil Ferrell comedy called, was it Step Brothers? Okay. Yeah. Some early 2000s. Uh, Will Ferrell and uh, John C. Riley were the main leads, if I remember correctly. Anyways, in the movie, there is this joke where Ferrell and Riley make this song called Boats and Hose, which basically is just Riley banging on drums, some basic comp, and Ferrell just repeatedly saying Boats and Hose. Never got the fucking joke. I watched it with a bunch of friends who found it extremely hilarious, like, yeah. were laughing their asses off. And I didn't see why. And then, wiping the tears from his eyes, one of my friends makes the question, why does Ferrell repeatedly say boats and hose? And on that moment, I, uh, I realized that the thing that people find so goddamn funny is just that Ferrell repeatedly saying boats and hose. That, that is the joke, and that is what hits people. <laughs> and in many ways, I would say that that kind of a ties into a lot of the humor of the Big Lebowski. Let me just reiterate that I'm not really a big uh, fan of comedy, because I think the vast, vast majority of comedies are not just not funny for me, or they're just simply bad movies. I admit that I have been through a lot of comedies in my life that other people find incredibly hilarious. And in the meanwhile, I'm just so not enjoying myself that I probably am just kind of almost at the point where I just, you know, have to <laughs> probably fake it a little to not look like that I'm, there's something wrong with me. So that's how I felt about the Lebowski until I kind of got more into the whole things, the in and outs of the movie. Yeah. And I'm, I'm with you on that one. Like I, I'm Great. the same way in, in a sense that most of the comedies that people like just, just don't hit me. I just don't get into them yes. at all. This is my main axe to grind with the Will Ferrell movies or, well, basically anything from Adam Sandler and, you know, yes. what, what, what we have these big comedy names. And if you take the Big Lebowski at the face value, you will not enjoy it. No, and I, w I would say that w when it comes to the comedy of the Big Lebowski, big, uh, it's, like I said, it's it's a lot of in the same spirit on how the comedy works than, for example, 
well, Will Ferrell movies. Like, like there, there is a line or something happens that just doesn't make any fucking sense. Like making a song where you just say boats and hose doesn't make any sense, but people find it extremely funny. And I would say that this is the same thing for most of the scenes in the Big Lebowski. But for a film critic, for a Finn who does a fucking movie podcast, we are too highbrow for Will Ferrell, but we still kind of uh, can enjoy the same type of humor, you know, those individual moments that just don't make sense. And the Big Lebowski is from Coen Brothers. It's extremely... Well-made, extremely professional movie. The directors are respectable. The actors are kind of a high-class actors. It's there. It's not Adam Sandler making the jokes. It's it's Jeff Bridges. So, if you are a pretentious film critic <laughs> or a film student or a drunken Finn who tries to make, do a movie podcast. <laughs> You, you you can't go in all out for a Will Ferrell movie, but you can have this shortcut by liking the Big Lebowski and laughing in kind of similarly constructed humor and still say that, you know, it's it's a highbrow movie. Yeah, somebody did a really good analysis of, of the movie and what really drives the main character at all in this movie. And it's all about the mattress or the carpet. That's all. He doesn't care about anything else. He just wants to get his carpet back or something to replace the carpet or yeah. whatever the case was. And he goes to the Big Lebowski's house. And uh, interesting when you consider all uh, the dudes kind of uh, approach on life, whatever the case m- may be, he, he comes off as kind of a, he is basically the kind of person that just tries to do the best possible outcome out of every single situation. But what he does at the Big Lebowski house is he actually steals the carpet of Mr. Lebowski. Interestingly enough, uh, the Big Lebowski doesn't care about it. And then the story goes into the whole hunting for his wife. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, yeah, and since you mentioned the carpet, it, uh, it's also kind of an interesting plot point in the movie. Because, like I was saying before, there there is a conflict between every other character of the movie and between, you know, the dude. Where every other character tries to, you know, do something actively, and the dude just tries to not to care about anything and just go with the flow. But with the carpet, there is a differentiation from this pattern where the dude gets extremely sensitive about getting getting something in or writing the wrong of the dude pissing on his carpet. Like, that is the one time when the dude breaks his cool, when he's not apathic about things happening around him. That is when the dude actively does something. He forces himself on the Mr. Lepovsky's life to get compensation on the carpet. That moment is the moment when the kind of a chaos starts to happen to the dude. 
Like he, he gets, because he goes to the Mr. Lepavsky's house, he gets tied, eventually tied into the whole kidnapping plot and with the nihilists and all, all these other characters. If the dude would not have taken an issue with his carpet, if he would have just been, you know, went with the flow on that moment, he would never have met Mr. Lepavsky and the whole kidnapping would not have happened to the dude. Yeah, I guess you could call this uh, MacGuffin moment where he goes there and, and the audience has no idea that this is going to be the like the major point where the story actually starts to develop. Yeah, and in a moment, it's a cautionary moment. Like, most of the film is on dude's side when it comes to the philosophies of life. It's very kind of a go with the flow, or the movie tries to very much, in my opinion, it tries strongly to say that you should go with the flow, not take stress, not try to force yourself on the world. And it shows this through the dude, so that, you know, when the dude breaks against this theme of going with the flow, all of a sudden he gets tied up into the whole kidnapping. Yes, and I guess this is the main point that I was trying to make, that regardless of the social class of the character, I mean, this aggression will, will not stand. I mean that the plot point the that he doesn't care is relatable regardless of the social class. I think so. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of a like I said, two-sided on that one. I mean, I can clearly see where you are coming from. And in many ways I would say that yes, you are right, but at the same time I'm unsure of how much does your social class affect on how much you care about stuff. Mm. I, I mean, Mr. Lepavsky cares a shit ton of stuff throughout the movie, and he's this upper class person, uh, or pretends to be. He's a fraud, as it turns out. And uh, yeah, I, I now, now that you mention it, I really can't say how much about uh, how much caring about stuff is tied to the is tied to your social class. Let's try to, anyway, wrap up the first act. What do you think about the first act? <laughs> I think they didn't put a lot of thought in the actual starting moments when dude goes into the supermarket and there's this voiceover about how he's not a big fan of Los Angeles or something like this. And yeah, I guess it's just really, it's, it's a good reflection of, what the dude is all about and he has this moment where he just kind of loses the plot and doesn't know what he's even talking about and yeah it, it's fine and then we meet the friends of the dude in the bowling alley and the, the bowling alley is kind of the, the central place where they discuss and how we get to know these characters and everything kind of explodes everything goes to the second act at the point where he goes to the Lebowski house and steals the carpet and then the the wife of Lebowski is abducted. Okay, yeah, what do you think about the introduction of the movie? Uh, well, the, the very first introduction. I like it. I, I, I like the introduction. There is, of course, the thing that I like a lot uh, 
I like a lot of Sam Elliott, who does the voiceover for the for the introduction. Mm. So yeah, of course I like the introduction on itself. However, I do have a bit of a problem with the introduction, which comes from the fact that the movie really does not, in my opinion, use Sam Elliott enough. Like, mm. and and this is this is something that I can whine about, but I don't know how to fix it because Sam Elliott's character in the movie is is someone who you really can't actually do that much with within the movie. Like the whole, whole cowboy character is extremely separate from the rest of the film. It is. And I remember on the first viewing that I didn't even remember the scene where the cowboy guy is introduced. I just remember the scene where the movie ends with the cowboy. And then I'm a little bit confused, like, how, who are you and why are you so important to the plot in the in the end? Yeah, yeah. And I, I kind of get that in a sense that the cowboy's point is to make uh, serve as a bookends for the story and for the film. And yep. that on itself is is fine. I'm not against that. And Sam Elliott's narration at the introduction of the film, I think, is pretty damn good. It's really mm. good introduction. But somehow I still hope that the full film would have had more Sam Elliott. And I think that the lack of Sam Elliott, the fact that Sam Elliott is only the bookends of the film, kind of a hurts the introduction. Maybe even the closing of the film. Okay. More, more the introduction than the closing. But had there been some way, and for the life of me, I my I do not know how this could have been done, since the cowboy character is what it is. But had there be, had there been more Sam Elliott in the film, I think it would have kind of made the introduction stronger. I have more respect for Philip Seymour Hoffman after seeing this movie. I think he's brilliant in this film, being this kind of a yes man for the Mr. Lebowski. I haven't seen a lot of his film. Of course, I've seen Mission Impossible 3, where he was really menacing and and uh, whatever your beliefs might be. Uh, bless bless his, his soul or so on and so forth. Second act... We are. Uh, we meet the pedophile, and we meet also Mister Landlord. There's a lot of characters like this that doesn't mean really anything. They could have cut the dream sequence. They could have cut the landlord. They could have cut the pedophile. They could have cut the Johnny, and nothing would have mattered. But it's just my opinion, man. Yeah, I, uh, I'm, I'm with you to a point. Like, for example, the landlord is, and uh, goddamn, do we actually get correction from the listeners after saying this? But I think he's pretty pointless character in the film, mm. and easily cuttable. Imagine cutting the dude or the actor Jeff Bridges. The movie would have. Nothing going for it. Probably if you would miscast this character, it's absolutely thanks to 
his contributions that this is actually working. Another interesting point is that <laughs> the catalyst for many, many, many moments for the movie to drive the movie towards anything is thanks to Walter because of his behavior, his uh, aggressive attitude, his Vietnam whatnot behavior. Uh, the dude is doing nothing, but funnily enough, most of the action of the movie is outsourced to Walter. The dude is just doing his thing and and this uh, Walter guy is uh, providing all the conflict needed to drive the narrative forward. Yeah, and still the dude actually is the one who gets the lady during <laughs> the movie. Kind of a yes. dri- driving home the point that if if you just take it easy and go with the flow, you might actually get more out of the life than if you try aggressively kind of a try to make things happen like Walter does. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, the movie could not happen without without Walter. Because like you said, most of the things that happened in the movie happens because Walter acts aggressively at some point. And the third act, I think it's, uh, it doesn't mean anything, nothing really means anything after the dude gets his carpet back in the end. There's the final moments uh, for their friend and they get the ashes and they sprinkle them all over themselves. I don't think there's a lot to be said about said about it. I don't know if it has any higher meaning. It's just, I really have no idea what, why they had to do that. Probably it's a, you can get a lot of, you can get some dramatic effect out of it. Yeah, I think there's nothing to go through there. Yeah, like I'm, I'm certain that we can find some film analysis if we mm. Google long enough that <laughs> goes, goes the whole scene frame by frame and points out the deeper meaning and the key to Buddhism in that scene. How was the overall pacing for you? Were there any moments that you would say that uh, bored you? flatly uh on my you know on my later wings no the i i would say nothing bored me i i can see individual scenes that could be cut and they wouldn't affect the movie but those scenes did not bore me of course this is only on the repeated viewings on my first viewing of the movie basically everything bored me how was the soundscape? I cannot really remember anything specific about the sound. I think there's not a lot of music to it. It's just more about the narrative than anything else. I do remember eagles. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> I I think that, you know, playing... I don't remember was... Or this is something, something where my where the film got better of me. Like, I can't say for sure, was there a foreign language version of Hotel California playing in one of the bowling hall scenes? Mm-hmm. Because I could swear on my late dog's grave that it, it was a Spanish or, you know, non-English version. But I can't be certain because if I remember correctly the goddamn chorus was 
was in English. If if I would cut something out of the movie, it's not to say that I would, but uh, if I had to, then this uh, dream sequence probably would have been it. Uh, I wasn't too keen on it, and I was feeling a little bit watching at my clock at this point, at least on the first viewing. It's just a little bit of fun that is added there. It doesn't contribute really anything as far as I'm concerned. I, on the other hand, am kind of a completely on the opposite side of the things. Uh, or it depends on, you know, what dream sequence you mean. The bowling. Uh, the first one or the second one? The, the dude goes under the woman and then there is the nihilists uh, with the scissors. I, and that exactly, you know, because I know that si- si- since you are a goddamn list monkey, this is going to come up <laughs> during this episode. There is a talk about the favorite scene and I already proclaim this one as my favorite scene of the movie. Okay. It is extremely, okay. I mean, I, I get the point. I get the argument that it has zero doing with the plot of the movie. It's basically just showing emotional reactions to the situations which we have already seen. And those emotional reactions are something that we already have, uh, have understood that there are like, the dude's affection to the bowling. We already know that dude loves bowling. It's the only thing that we see him do on his free time. The thing that, you know, he finds the, the daughter of Mr. Lepowski, the Julian Moore character, yes. Maud. Yeah. Yes. That she, uh, that, that the dude finds Maud sexually attractive. We've already got that from the movie. Uh, the fact that the dude fears for his Johnson, we already have gotten that from the movie. So in that sense, the that dream se- sequence does not uh, withhold new information. But I think it's extremely well shot, and it's most kind of a it's most testing and. It's the scene where uh, the Cohen brothers mostly try different stuff. And visually, I think it's extremely interesting. And because of that, I will name it as my favorite scene. Is this your scientific opinion to say that this is absolutely the best made scene in the film? Or how is your... How is your sample size? How do you, without a doubt, conclude that this is the best scene or is this simply your personal opinion? Well, it's my opinion, man. (laughs) Fair enough. Moving on to the next stuff. Rewatchability of this movie. It's quite high, I would say, personally in my personal opinion, man, because you cannot, you probably will not fully understand the ins and outs on the first viewing. So, yes, it's high. Yeah, I would say that this is a movie you have to see more than one time. Like, I I would say three times is a minimum. 
Yes. I, I, I myself have seen this now four or five times and I like it more every viewing. And therefore I would say that, you know, you, you kind of have to check this movie out repeatedly. Mm. Let's go to the reality check zone. Is there anything that jumps at you that is beyond the reasonable uh, limits of re- reality? What is so ridiculous that you are, that it breaks the illusion of the movie? Is there anything like that? If I think personally, mm, well, yeah, probably nothing about it is really realistic when you, probably the the Walter character is the most ridiculous in, in the movie. Um, he's the major guy, as said, who drives the plot forward and he's probably the most ridiculous aspect in the movie and certainly a great comedic effect. Yeah, if I would have to name one scene from the movie, I would say it's the flashback of Turtoro's character, Jesus Quintana, when Walter tells the dude that when Jesus moved to the area, he had to go from door to door and tell everyone on the neighborhood that he's a pederast. And yeah. I, w- I-, I would say that scene where Jesus goes on and rings the doorbell of this beer-drinking blue-collar worker to tell him that he's a pederast, and then walks apparently walks away alive from that encounter. I, I, I say that is most in- unrealistic scene in the movie. Actually, now that you mentioned El Jesus, I have to go with some of the scenes in the ending part of the movie where El Jesus and his two companions are facing the the three heroines of ours. And one of them says that it's not fair that they're not getting compensation for their evil plan. So that that stuck out. Yeah, to be honest, I don't know how much there was an evil plan going on. Mm. <laughs> the, the, the whole, whole bowling drama is kind of a, it's left so ambiguous that you don't really know who did what, except that Walter waved his piece around in the bowling alley. Yes. Well, I can commend the dude for not really picking up a fight with anyone. Uh, one point that was raised somewhere in the reviews was that the dude abides, he, he just follows what other people are doing and, and he's commenting on their behavior, but he's never picking up a fight and which is probably why he's still alive at the end of the, the movie. So I can relate, I can relate. The biggest repetitions of the movie, as I'm a list monkey, my favorite quote probably is, it really tied the room together. And uh, then, then there's other things that he's referring to repeatedly. It's, uh, again, after he hears them, it's John's son. And all right, moving on. I guess we are uh, going to the finishing thoughts pretty much, unless you have something to add at this point. Not at this point. Nice. List monkey portion. Favorite performance. Go ahead. It's a tie between John Goodman and Jeff Bridges. Yes, 
like like in the last episode, I would have to say the exact same because they are they are so much tied together that I can't really choose. I will have to be lazy and just go with what you just said right there. Uh, favorite kill scene. Oh, okay. It's not a horror movie, so we can skip that out. Favorite scene. Already said. The goddamn dream scene, which you were cutting yes. out from the movie. You heartless bastard. <laughs> Pardon me. Pardon me. My favorite scene. I find particularly funny the scene where the dude is taken with his drink to the limo to talk with Mr. Lebowski and his assistant. Careful man, this beverage here. A classic. <laughs> well, we've been covering the movie so damn much that at this point it's uh, going to kind of confuse our answer to this next question. But when you think of this movie, what's the first image that you can think of? I would say the bunny's cut off toe. Hmm. I can picture the Big Lebowski's mansion and things that happened there. I, I don't know why, but I'm, I'm really a big fan of uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman at this point. Yeah, I, I think I will go with the toe because it's... I, I think it's pretty damn good visual storytelling. Like, mm. the, kind of the whole body plot can be told without any words, simply by images of the toe. And how the toe is kind of uh, brought up in the move uh, throughout the movie. So, what's your overall feel? Uh, does this uh, movie deserve a toe or no toe at all, or rather a thumb? Or would I recommend it? Yes. Which is perhaps you know, it's a it's a tough question actually. Yes. Because, like I said. I'm not the biggest fan of the big club, the big club Havaski. I've grown to like it more as I've seen it repeatedly, but I still am not. I, I still have a lot of access to grind with this film. Anything in particular? I would say my biggest problem is the same that you have. The mm. plot, the kind of a non-existing, self-solving mystery of the movie. Yeah. But at the same time, uh, also a second problem which I have is that, li like you, I do not find the comedy in the Big Lebowski that fun. Yes. Like I, I like watching it, but I don't laugh to it. Yes. And at, but at the same time, at the same time, I have to admit that it's not necessarily the movie's fault. Like ev everything in the Pickle Pavski in my mind is done extremely professionally. It's extremely well done movie. And when looking at what kind of movie this is trying to be, I think that, you know, the non-existing plot and the type of humor it has are, they are not 
faults in this movie. Like, like the movie does nothing wrong, and my problems with the movie comes from me not as a person not connecting with the film. And I can I can admit that those are kind of a lackings in me as a movie watcher, and not so much something that is wrong with the film. So when you try to say, would I recommend it? Um, I, I wouldn't recommend it as your first Coen Brothers film. Like if you would ambush me on a fil- in a film store and come to me like, you know, I've heard a lot of cool things about these Coen Brothers and about the Big Lebowski and I would like to get into their films. I would, would I recommend the Big Lebowski? No. I would say watch Fargo or Miller's Crossing or Oh Brother Where Are Thou instead. But if if you watched all those films and then you would come to me like, saying that I, I really do like these Goen Brothers guys. So what else can I watch from them? Is the Big Lebowski any good? At that point, yeah, I will, I, I could recommend. I could recommend the Big Lebowski to you. It's it's not as slow burn as, for example, the man who wasn't there, and it's not as outrightly bad as, for example, the Lady Killers. Like you just said, and like I've said during this cast, I'm not a really big fan of the humor too much. I mean, it's lower class in in nature, or. I'm not sure if that is the problem with the humor. I just don't really find it that funny. But I can understand why some 15, 18-year-olds would find it funny and how they would feel this nostalgia, which is probably what the movie's legacy is a lot about. I can I can understand that they would kind of identify with it in their later years. But um, like you said, the movie does nothing wrong. It's a lot of adolescent fun. But would I recommend it? Take a look at yourself. Look at it yourself. See what you can find in it, which you probably have at this point, if you're listening to this, and see what you think of it. Probably the key component why this wasn't commercially successful is that it's not very accessible. And what I mean by that is it's not accessible on the first viewing until you get into the whole, I suppose, bigger meaning. Really, this movie is about nothing at all. It's about the rock, maybe. But Yeah, it's, it's more about the philosophy of doing nothing and yes. being happier for that. Yes. And I'm content with that. It's okay. I abide and dude abides. Whatever you want that to mean. Would I recommend the Big Lebowski? All right. Facing the dead end wall and gun to my head. Would I recommend the Big Lebowski? I would say yes. Yes, but after multiple viewings, you will get it. I would recommend it because it's probably if if you don't understand the message of this this film if you if you're not 
close to these ideas that the movie is tackling with, then yes, I, I would recommend it. So if you want to have a laid back attitude about your life, if you're missing that component, or if you just need a reminder of it, how to get back to it, yes, just put on the big Lebowski, but don't expect to get it on the first viewing. I would still recommend it. Maybe it's uh, doing something spiritually for you, uh, as is evident from the several books, as mentioned, that have been released, and the whole Judaism church stuff. So, yes, go ahead and try the Big Lebowski. Why not? Yeah, this went quite a different road that I was kind of thinking that we would end up when starting this episode. Like, I, I, I was sure that we are going to bury an axe into this one. Yeah, but, me too. But, but yeah, but we ended up recommending it. Yeah, I, support, uh, I surprised myself. I was going to give this movie an axe, as you said. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, please take a look at it and see for yourself if you like it. All right. Mr. Henrik, how are you? How is the weather now there? Is it still stormy? The storm has finally subsided. My glass, unfortunately, is empty and something weird has happened to my bottle of vodka. <laughs> God damn. You should have mentioned me. Yeah, that, that, I, I think I made a crucial mistake in there. Oh, it was good to have a try with something new for me, at least with this drink, but... The next episode, what do you think? So, as we talked, are you up to face oh, I fucking the entire, entire Halloween series ah, before, before the premiere of, of the new Halloween from 2018? You know, so the, you, you know, the Halloween 2018 is going to suck. Like, you're, you're getting all excited all for nothing. Like it, it, just... it, it, it's, it's going to be a horrible, horrible film and we are going to go, go <laughs> to a franchise which has so many fucking dots in it. Let ah. me ask you this. Let me ask you this. Have you seen the movies of David Gordon Green or the actors who are in this film? I have, in fact. And I have really high hopes of the movie. That being said, that being said... I'm not satisfied with the trailer. It was a little kind of lacking in all the aspects that they said they would do and that they would kind of imitate or reconstruct from the first movie. It's a totally different beast. It's a totally different beast now in 2018. And it's it's not surprising in any goddamn way. But we can talk about it later. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. Since, yeah. Since you asked, I have watched absolutely nothing from the director, and I'm not familiar with the cast, and I have not even seen the trailer oh. for for this for this upcoming Halloween film. Yeah, I can't say that I can recommend it or anything. Viewer discretion is advised. You will like it if you like modern horror movies. Let's say it has something going for it, but it's not quite. There, what the original 
was about and what the, the, the original of course is the bible of the whole series and they went astray so many times it, anyway yeah. i would love to talk about halloween the ins and outs and what have you entirely yeah that, that the upcoming halloween film will go up in flames mark my words <laughs> i'm already calling it at this point the film is nowhere near the theaters yet and i'm already calling it I can't wait. I literally can't wait to discuss with you the first Halloween and and the following shit shows that follow. There are good movies. A couple some. of them. Some in amidst, amidst of a part of shit when it comes to the Halloween franchise. Absolutely. Oh my and fucking I, god. I love your vocabulary. You are definitely a book reader. thank you for joining us thank you henrik again it's been a blast and i hope to see you in the next episode when we get to inspect the slasher movie of all slasher movies the grandfather of all that is terrifying halloween See you later, folks. Bye-bye. Bye.